said we're already rolling? Oh, okay. Well, for this week's episode, I am so excited to have Alan Hooper with us. And Alan, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, hi, I'm Alan. <laughs> I think we all know that since you introduced me. Uh, most people know me as the casting associate for Modern Family, which I've been with since the pilot. And I've worked on other great shows, but it's just a list people could look up on IMDb. So uh, I started as an actor, sort of, you know, I did a high school play and I was like, this is fun. Let's see what else I can do. And did community theater in the Atlanta area and then decided I wanted that to be my job. Uh, so I didn't have one job in the day and then a hobby at night. So I moved out to Los Angeles and uh, found out that acting is a gateway drug to a better career in the entertainment industry. So it, uh, I interned at a casting office, uh, Ulrich Dawson Kritzer, and that kind of trying to see there what wasn't going right with the acting career actually led to me realizing what career I probably should have started with. <laughs> awesome. And uh, also one of our industry's biggest uh, advocates for protecting talent. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that. And then my co-host for the week is Brittany Dassa. Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hi guys, I'm Brittany Dassa. I'm a student at USC um, and I'm also an actress. I moved out here about three years ago and I'm just starting out. So I have a lot of questions and I'm really excited to be here and get some insight on the industry. And one thing I'm very uh, interested for you to share with people as well is why in addition to going such a, to, to such a great school for theater, did you decide to supplement your education with on-camera training as well? I think that'll be cool. In yeah, fact, why the heck don't we start there? Okay. <laughs> so uh, why don't you just share why you thought it would be valuable to take on camera training? So I realized while I was at school that, I mean, USC is an amazing program, uh, but it is very theater-based, and I wanted to be able to get myself on camera every single week because I feel like you know, as an actor, it's like being an athlete. You need to practice and practice and practice. And um, I also wanted to have a community outside of school. Um, and I, one of my teachers, Kevin McCorkle, he introduced me to you and your studio. And for me, I instantly felt that this is the right thing. This is right for me because, like, I felt like I had a support system, people that I could re rely on who aren't students, who aren't super busy all the time, well, super busy with other things, but that w will be able to bring me up as they rise as well. Mm -hmm. And so I just really needed that, like, family community and that um, opportunity to work with people who are not just my age, too. Mm -hmm. I think that that's super important. I mean, when you're an actor, you're going to be working with people who are older, younger, and, you know, obviously in a theater program, you're going to play characters who are, like, 20 years older than you, and you're going to work with people who are pretty much the same age as you. Well, and as an actor yourself, and I don't know if you call yourself, Alan, an actor anymore, but, you know, how do you see the value of on-camera training versus stage training? Well, there was a couple of things you said that I truly believe. One is it's training. You're like an athlete. Yeah. I always make the analogy with Michael Phelps, who won gold medal after gold medal for swimming. You know, did he get in a pool every day and learn how to swim? Or did he get in a pool every day and train to be the best swimmer on the planet? So you might already know everything, you know, and have a great background like a, a theater program, but you still need to train 
especially when it's more a theater-centric program, and you want to be able to morph that into film and TV style of acting. And I love the comparison to athletics because what I'd share with people is, does the competition get even more fierce when you're in the professional leagues or less fierce? Of course, you have to work harder when you're in the professional level. So you don't get to just sit back and be like, okay, I've arrived. I'm on a network show. I don't have to train anymore. I don't have to work out anymore. Yeah, the best like professional football players, baseball players, they're training the entire time in the offseason mm -hmm. so that they can be ready for what football team... I'm going to show my ignorance now. I think it's 16 games currently yeah. a season, mm -hmm. uh, not counting the preseason and the playoffs. So they're training year-round for 16 events. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, crazy. And the, that's what the actors have to do right. as well. Uh, the other thing you mentioned is is something my acting coach that I was with for the longest time, her name's Molly Benson. And she has um, since retired, but she's on Facebook, uh, occasionally giving advice, occasionally yelling at people. Mm -hmm. uh, but she would always say, play with the better tennis player. Mm. And if you play with a better tennis player, you're going to lose, but you're going to learn a whole lot more than if you're just playing with everybody that's at your skill level. Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. And that's what I've found in the studio, too. Like, not everyone is at the same level. Like, some people are literally just starting out, have never acted before, ever. And I think that that's a great opportunity for people to rise together and pull each other up and... Honestly, I mean, you're not going to always work with the best actor in the world. And so you need to know how to work with all types of people, too. <laughs> and I know you're speaking from experience. You shot a short film where you had to work with somebody who's fairly new at acting. Yeah, I did. Um, I wouldn't even say that they were new, but maybe they didn't have a background in film. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult, if, especially when you don't. I mean, every artist has like their right to you know express themselves how they want to and you can't be like you need to say it this way I can't give another actor a line read and so you just you know talk around it and make as many suggestions as you can without you know literally telling someone what they need to do mm -hmm. yeah I remember a play I did in Atlanta where the other actor was newer not the best some nice way of saying not good. Mm -hmm. um, he was, no, he was fine. I, now I sound just arrogant. <laughs> Holy moly. But I remember, like, within the moment, I wasn't thinking, what do I need to do for myself to make this look better? I was thinking, what do I need to do to connect with him more? Mm -hmm. Yes. What things can I do to, you know, without doing what you're saying, you can't give somebody a line reading, you can't tell them, you're not the director. That's right. just going to cause chaos if you mm -hmm. try to do the other actor's job for them. But just a way to be more open and more connected with them and hope that that will, you know, bring out of them the things that got them there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's something that actors can use in the real world with actual auditions because the reader that you're reading with might know a little bit about acting. They might know nothing about it. Yeah, actually, I would love to hear about that because actors are constantly wigged out about who's going to read with them in the room. And they'll even ask, you know, who am I reading with? And then they don't know whether they're reading with the casting director, the associate, an assistant, a reader who was just brought in, who's a performer. Can you comment a little bit on the whole reader aspect of casting? Well, I think the first thing actors should do is they should always use the reader. And there's a number of actors I see, they come in and they don't know to connect with the reader. And so they're creating an imaginary person in thin air, mm -hmm. and that just never works as well as even the worst reader you could like be Like they wouldn't with. even look at the reader. Correct. Yeah. 
And then there's other times that there's two people in the scene that, or three people in the scene total, the actor and two others. And they'll let the reader be one of those people. And then they'll put the other one as thin air as well. And it still doesn't work as well as making one person be two people and just being focused on that reader. But there's always, if you get off too much on your own, then you might as well just be doing a monologue. You know, that's the difference between a lot of theater and TV and film, or, or one of the simple re, uh, distinctions, is there's more monologues in a play than there ever would be in TV or film. Well, that's interesting because the, you know, the I we call it splitting points of focus, right? That we make the reader, um, and, and this is something just as a caveat that we say changes from office to office. Because there will be some offices that say, okay, I want you to split the points of focus and make me this person, put this other person over there, put this other person over there, so that it's clear when you're watching the tape back that you have different relationships with different people. But other offices say, you know what, just read right straight to me, just put it all to me. And so it kind of becomes like, at one of those preferences that you learn by office by office what they prefer. But for the performer, it helps to be able to have a different, you know, embodiment of a character at a different place so that you can, you know, if, if I'm going to choose that water bottle over there, that that's my father and I've got a very clear different relationship than to you as my mother who is the main person in the scene. And then whoever's watching this back on the network level or whoever uh, can see more immersively what I would do with that story. Yeah. I should have started with the caveat that everything I say at some point will be wrong. <laughs> so I always talk about... You've been married. <laughs> yes, I have, very happily. Uh, so, but there's always other opinions. And so what I try to focus on are what I think are the truisms. And hopefully I, my preferences are the truisms, and mm -hmm. that's why I'm successful. Mm -hmm. I think if your preferences are the exceptions you might have that one hit wonder song, mm -hmm. but you won't have a career. Right. And so for me, the truism is to always use the reader. And if for your process, you need those different points of view, I think one person is the reader, the other person is on the left shoulder of the reader, the third person's on the right shoulder of the reader, that they're not that far away so that others might think you're still looking at and using the reader mm. who normally has the camera behind them mm -hmm. and you don't want to take your eyes too far away from the camera. There are some people in a producer session that they'll look at the producers and make them somebody. Oh yeah, you never look at the other people in the room, right? No. Can you comment on why? I can tell you exactly why. <laughs> if you've ever been in public and been caught staring at somebody <laughs> and you feel that embarrassment and then of course somebody's probably coming over and go, why are you staring at me? And there's a confrontation and a barroom brawl, you know, I've escalated it way beyond what the story actually <laughs> needs. But that's what the producers are doing. They're staring at you, judging you. And when you look them in the eye, they get caught staring at you and judging you. And they shut down and they become embarrassed and they don't watch the good work that you're doing. Yeah. I always say, I've been doing this 10 plus years. I can look you in the face and judge you constantly <laughs> without any shame or remorse because it's what I get paid to do. Well, yeah, and I tell them, you know, actors as well, that the other people are not there to act with you. As soon as you look at them, you're engaging them in the scene and what they do, if they scratch their face, whatever it is, can now affect you and they're not there for that. They're there to observe. Yeah, but they, you make them self-conscious when you mm -hmm. use them like that. Yeah. And you don't want them self-conscious. You want them to be in the audience. Mm-hmm. I have a question as someone who's just kind of getting my footing in the industry. Um, something that I experience, and I feel like a lot of people who are just starting out kind of experiences like like audition anxiety and like 
being so caught up in what does the casting director want. And I just was curious um, kind of how you feel, like, do you even really know what you want when you're casting someone? Or like, do you feel that when you see a lot of people, your vision of a character like is often swayed by what has been given to you? We usually have a good idea of what, not we want, but what the writer wants because we're trying to honor the writer's intent. And I think that's where a lot of actors get off track is they forget to honor the writer's intent as they're trying to make it their own and bring it to life. But there was one role we had where we were looking for a, a fabulous metrosexual. And we asked the producers, what do you mean by that? And they went, well, we believe the guy is straight, but he's perceived gay. So we brought in those actors that do that really well and had them read. And the producers went, oh, I know that's what we said, but we really want, you know, people that are more fabulous than that. So we brought in the fabulous crowd. And then they saw that and went, oh, no, I know we said that, but he's somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so we really didn't know what we wanted. And so when you are, as an actor, try to put yourself in our mindset, you're going to always do yourself a disservice. Because if you're you know, the less fabulous but thought of as fabulous crowd. I always used Eric McCormick as the example, but Jesse Tyler Ferguson kind of can be the, the current mold as well, although Eric McCormick's back on TV these days. So, mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're that type of actor and you think we need Sean Hayes or Eric Stone Street as Cameron, you know, you're going to push. You're going to become big, broad, over the top. You're not going to get this role and you're not going to be thought of for other roles. And on the other spectrum, if you're Sean Hayes or if you're, you know, Eric Stone Street as Cameron and you think we want Will or you think we want uh, Mitchell in Modern Family, you're going to diminish what you do that's so special and you run the risk of becoming boring, bland, uninteresting, and you don't get thought of for this role and you don't get thought of for other roles. So you got to just be yourself within what you think is the writer's intent. And if you think you can't do the writer's intent, then you just don't come in. Yeah. We talk, I have a phrase that sounds like a platitude, but it's very deep, and that is that you are enough, and that you just have to really own your behavior, your mannerisms, who you are, and infuse your work with that wherever possible, as long as it doesn't conflict with the writing, which is why I love what you said about honoring the writer's intent. Now, on your website, you even talk about the importance of being word perfect. Can you share with us why it's important to see performers be word perfect with the material when they come in? Simply, have you ever seen a Shakespeare show and it not been word perfect <laughs> and still enjoyed it? You know, if you're in a David Mamet play and you change the words and he's in the audience, do you live to see tomorrow? It's, I, it's important because the writers serve a very valuable purpose. They're, they're God, really, because they create what everybody else is working on. They create the world. They do. They create <laughs> what you say. They create the locations. They... You know, it's, depending on how much detail they put in the script, they're going to create what you're going to wear. You know, they're the voice that everybody else is trying to service. And, you know, there's some collaboration. There's some improvisation sometimes. But again, the truism, I think, is do the script as written. And because I work primarily in comedy, Emmy winning for writing comedy, uh, one of our writers has a Peabody Award. You know, when it's at that level and you change the words, you do a lot more damage than if you're improvising in the short film with your friends and you, nobody really wrote it. You just wrote out what you thought you were going to do. Now, how do you feel about lead-ins and buttons as well? Uh, 
Oh. <laughs> exactly. I, I pronounce it but on because that's what you've done at the end is maybe made an ass of yourself. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's like, like, oh, you got to do the button. It's, you know, show them how special you are. I went, well, why didn't you do that for two pages before you got to the button? <laughs> totally. And structurally, in, in especially TV comedy, you've got buttons at the end of a scene to propel you to the next scene. You know, you've got buttons at the end of an act to propel you through the commercial break. So there are buttons, but they're scripted. The writer figures out what the blow to the scene is. And when you come in and you try to do that... I always say, if an actor can make a modern family script better, then they've chosen the wrong career. They need to go be a writer. (laughs) And the other thing to realize, especially in TV, TV, the writer is the producer. They're the one deciding if you get the job. And so you've come in and said, hey, I know you thought you did a great job writing this, but let me show you how it could be better. Yeah. Because I'm going to do your job for you. I mean, the actors just have to realize how many times do they appreciate anybody telling them how to do their job. And I think that part of that comes from bad instruction because I know there are educators out there, well, quote-unquote educators out there, who will say things like, throw out the punctuation, make it your own, feel free to put it in your own words so that it feels real, whatever. And that, I don't know if many of those people are employed. And if some of them are employed, then I, I would question whether they do that successfully in network TV that's scripted when they're auditioning themselves or whether it's advice that they do themselves. Because I think it does them such a disservice. I also talk about how uh, you make casting nervous that you can't handle copy given to you. And if you can't say the words that are given to you, it makes it a nightmare on set, and it makes it a nightmare on the script supervisor, and it makes it a nightmare in post when you're trying to cut the dialogue together, the scenes together. And if somebody's mouths aren't saying what's on the script, you may not even be able to loop it because you don't know what they were saying. Yeah. Well, I had a producer of a pilot, uh, co-creator of the pilot, we had... and. He and his writing partner, they were known as coming from the improv world. And so a lot of the actors came in thinking that's what they wanted to see. One of the, one of the two uh, producers, after somebody had just improvised a lot of the scene, he went, ah, oh, it's hard enough telling which actor is better because it's apples and oranges. And then they changed the words and make it even harder for me. You know, we need that constant of the words mm-hmm. to judge who is bringing these words to life the best. Mm-hmm. So that's... and. Uh, we, one of our catchphrases is somebody will say, oh, my coach told me to do that. We'll say, you need to get a new coach. Yeah. Because when you don't honor the punctuation, especially in comedy, there's a, uh, we're working on a Netflix series at the moment. We're doing the pilot and it's going to be eight episodes. And there's this dramatic moment in it with, for a 14 year old. And it's a monologue. And the writer has very carefully crafted where the pauses are with ellipses. Mm-hmm because it is a nervous thing he's trying to tell his parents. And the actors come in and they get the essence of what the role is, but then they start adding many more pauses, which is natural if it was the real world. If it was a drama, they'd get away with it. But in a sitcom, you can't add that. It's got to have that nervous uncertainty done quickly mm-hmm. with pace. And if you just do exactly where the ellipses are, you do it much better than if you try to add punctuation. That's something that actors uh, don't often appreciate is that the writing quality in network TV is outstanding. You know, everything means something specific. Ellipses mean something specific. The dashes mean something specific. Whereas in film scripts, often film scripts could be written by people who are newer to writing, but they have a great story that sells or whatever. But to be staffed on a show as a writer, you have to demonstrate proficiency. Yeah. Well, and with TV writing, you get so many notes 
that by the time the actor sees the script, the writer has already gotten the opinion of many people mm -hmm. as to what they think would make it better, mm -hmm. and your opinion may not be appreciated at that point. But one of the things that, that you're known for and that I admire about you and why I was excited also to have you here with us is because you're very passionate about protecting talent. Where did that come from, and, and can you share about you know, why that's important to you? It probably came from being talent or thinking I was talent at one point. I moved out, like I said earlier, to Los Angeles to try to pursue acting. And so when I started working in casting, there were all these things that people had told me as an actor, but now I saw it and it made sense. Because back then, we would get 500 headshots for one role, messengered over, and I was the one opening the envelopes, putting them on the stack, and it, that tactile experience really slammed home that you're really lucky to get that audition because there's so many people pursuing it. But I, in knowing what the struggle is or you know the dream is of wanting that role or that opportunity and seeing people fight for it, I just wanted to always, and I sometimes fail, but I always wanted to try to be the positive that helped the actor through what is a difficult thing to be, go to an audition. I think actors fixate on their headshot the same reason they fixate on their demo reel or anything else they fixate on that they can actually control. Because an actor has control over what their headshot looks like. They have no control over a lot of other things in their career mm -hmm. because they can go in and do the best work ever and still not get a role because there's things outside their control that influence that. So they fixate on things that don't matter as much as they think they do just because it gives them a sense of control. With the headshot, I've seen people take one with an iPhone. Headshot photographers are gonna hate me for this, but I've seen people take one with an iPhone and it will get them in the room just as much as one somebody spent got thousands of dollars, dear Lord. I love what you said about there's only so many variables that are under an actor's control. And so the, the, the wisdom is, and this is how I communicate it to performers as well, is that Every variable that is under your control, there's no excuse to not do the best job possible with that variable. True. Right? And so you know, certainly you want to optimize all those variables so that at least you have your stuff together and then there's enough market forces and other people in the process that will determine whether you get any singular job or not. But if you have all of if you have your marketing down, if you have your skills and your training down, you've got a great team that you're working very, you know, positively with, then you're getting at bats and you're and you only have to, what, hit 300 in Major League Baseball to be a great slugger, mm -hmm. right? So we're constantly trying to uh, have the best conversion ratio possible, which is how many auditions did I have, and of those, how many did I book? Is it one in 40? Is it one in 30? Is it one in 20? And as you optimize these variables, you see that start to go down, where now you're booking one out of 10, one out of seven, something like that, right? So the headshots, just like your reels, just like your online casting profiles, et cetera, are variables that are under our control. But now when it comes to you know, the commercial side of the business, which is very different than the theatrical side of the business, some of those uh, you know, photos taken with somebody's iPhone may not have the strategic forethought to help somebody really get the kind of headshot for commercial work that is gonna help clients who aren't creatives you see them in a particular way or see them as a particular role. But on the theatrical side, I've actually noticed theatrical casting directors have much more flexibility and openness to the kinds of headshots they see from people. Correct. Well, and I, that is good advice, but every good piece of advice can be taken too far. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what I'm referring to mm -hmm. is 
they fixate on something that is already good. Mm -hmm. You know, every actor has taken a headshot that they thought was awesome, and then after looking at it for 200 hours, now they hate it. Yeah. It's that kind of mentality that you have to try and not fall into. Well, I think it's easy to fixate on something like that as opposed to focusing where you really should focus, which is on your work ethic and the quality of your art. Yes. Uh, plus, just, sorry, one other thing is uh, agent, uh, commercial agent Mark uh, Measures, I'll give him a shout out because mm -hmm. he said this and it stuck in my head 15 years ago. He was at Abrams at the time. I'm not certain if he's still there somewhere else. Huge commercial agent. And somebody asked him how many looks, how many headshots he required of his clients. And he said, one, if I can't sell you with one headshot, I'm not doing my job. Mm. And that's the other end of the extreme. Where there's other actors that they have 20 shots to show me all the different looks they can do. And I appreciate that because I flippantly will say I look at the least flattering headshot and that's the one you look like. Since we're talking about variables that are under your control, um, something I've kind of noticed when I go into an audition room is like I'm more often being asked um, what's your social media handle and like how many followers do you have on social media and sometimes as an actor just going into it I don't have a million followers so it's a little disheartening because I don't feel like my following on Instagram correlates with my talent but just curious how you feel about how social media is starting to like impact the way people are starting to cast projects. And also, you should, I don't know if you saw him make the symbol of shooting I, his brains out. I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> I, if I had a bucket, I would vomit. Um, I, I understand that there are certain people that put value on that. I hope to never be in a situation where I'm required to be, put that of value. Um, because I think it's, if you're a good actor, you're a good actor. I always say, was two and a half men any better with Ashton Kutcher and all of his followers than it was with Charlie Sheen? You know, and nothing against Ashton Kutcher, it's just two and a half men was Charlie Sheen and, and John Cryer. Uh, and it just wasn't the same. So the followers didn't help that situation at all. What I noticed when somebody comes in, we had this happen recently, somebody came in and they were with one of the three-letter agencies, and so we brought them in for a role, and we're like, that was not a good audition, flipped it over, couldn't figure out why they were with the three letters, and it was because they had a YouTube channel, and they had a million followers, and I always say personality does not equate to acting, mm -hmm. and there are some people that sometimes get acting jobs because of their personality, but it does not make them an actor. Mm-hmm. Does it make them Eddie Redmayne as the Danish girl? What does make them an actor? Eddie Redmayne as the Danish girl. <laughs> or uh, Gary Oldman in just about anything where you don't see him, Willem Dafoe. But as far as, far as, as other than an example, like what an actor can think of to do for themselves, what will make them an actor? What, what do you see people not doing that they should be doing? <clears throat> see, that's a good question because I haven't gone through like a USC where you have the formal training. So you might have a better answer to that of how they bring that out of you. I just see the end product. But you're like a restaurant critic. So, you know, when you decide what is good, you know, what, 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 what can people do to serve you better? Yeah, well, that's true. But I would say, I don't know how the chef put it together. I just know the end product. I just know how it tastes, exactly. So there's just a feel I have for somebody that's depending on things that make them charming or things that make them want you to be their friend. 
as opposed to being able to hit the emotional moments. It's, hmm, I'm going to get into the metaphysical. It's all about them when it's personality. When it's acting, it's all about them and the scene and their partners. And the story. And the story. Hmm. And it just reaches at a different depth. I think this is so important that this came up, so I'm really glad you brought that up, is, is the fact that it, it, we're all in service to the story. And it's interesting how when you, you know, when you are well-trained, when you understand yourself and that you accept that you are enough just as you are and to embrace who you are, and you bring your creative vision to the piece, uh, that the casting director or professional that you're working with can't necessarily tell you how to achieve that performance, but they can recognize one that serves the story and that com com compels them. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes actors go into the room thinking that the casting directors are are the actors that tell me how to do this. It's like, well, it's not my job, and I actually don't know how to tell you how to do this, but I can see well-trained and skilled performers come in and you know knock it out of the park. So yep. do whatever you got to do to do something like that. The main piece of advice I give people when I'm out conducting a workshop. And just a little aside here, I've noticed that there's advice I give people, you know, as a teacher that I can't give as a casting associate, that the, the notes I give in a workshop are things that people need to think about, to train with, to prepare with, and it might take them a while to incorporate it into all the other good skills they have, where the notes in an actual audition are ones we hope you already have the skills to implement mm -hmm. because we can't teach you how to act. There was somebody recently that they came in. Oh, no, they did a self-tape. They did a self-tape, and I said, well, there's this, there's that, there's this other stuff that they need to do in trying to be constructive and help them with some feedback. And the agent replied, oh, well, you know, if you had them in the room, I'm sure you could work with them and get them there. And I just, they hit me at the wrong moment, and I said <laughs> a very flippant thing. I said, hey... I gave them a chance to swing at the ball. I can't teach them how to hit. Yeah. And that's the truth. Because when I'm doing my casting job, we're trying to find qualified people that can make the role work. And everybody's like, well, why aren't you seeing the fresh faces? Well, the fresh faces are unknown faces. And we sometimes get to them and they get a chance. And hopefully their talent trumps the fact that they don't have as much experience, but you're always going with the most experienced people first. Because they're dependable. One of the things that I that has become really clear for me over the last few years is how casting often is like a method of last resort. Like if we can get this job done with people we already know, love, and trust that are available, that we know are going to serve this story well, that saves us having to bring in a bunch of randoms that could be basket cases or <laughs> that could be wasting our time that we have very little of. And so... You know, can you speak to that as to uh, the offers versus the the castings? Yeah, well, there's a certain level of actor that, duh, they should be offered the roles mm -hmm. all the time. I've noticed with Modern Family, there are actors that are typically offer only that, depending on the role and the situation, will come in and read just because of the quality of the show, they're a fan of the show, maybe there's some other reason and they, one uh, example I'm thinking of uh, booked it, and the other example, they actually, uh, the actress got beat out by somebody else that had very few, if any, credits, but that was just perfect for the role. So now I've forgotten your question because I was going off on a story. Well, I was talking about, you know, the, the, the oh, offers, offers versus, versus the having thing. to do a casting. Yeah. You know, it goes back and forth. There, 
like I said, there are certain people that you just want and you have to offer it to them to get them. There's other times the producers just want to see what somebody's going to do with the role because the bird in the hand is sometimes better than the two in the bush. And there are times that you make an offer and it doesn't click the way you think it would. Mm -hmm. There's actually, I'm not going to say anybody by name, but there's two extremely well-known actors that were offered roles on Modern Family and replaced at the guest star level. And you would think, well, oh my God, you can't, how did that happen? And it just did. There's just, uh, it just happens to everybody at some point. Julianne Moore was talking about um, the Melissa McCarthy movie that she got nominated for the Oscar, and Julianne Moore had the role to begin with, and she got fired. Hmm. And, and it's a long story, and there's a lot more to it that things that were completely out of her control. But Oscar nominee, I can't remember if she's ever won, but it's Julianne Moore, and she got replaced. Yeah. There's something you said uh, a, a, a few minutes ago about actors coming in and doing something in the audition and then saying, well, my coach told me to do that, right? <laughs> and one of the, the things I've been discussing with actors uh, has been this phrase, if you want to be a lead, you've got to be a leader. And you've got to, at some point, you've got to have a sense of mastery over the craft. And when I, what I mean by mastery isn't that there's nothing left to learn and that you're the best thing since sliced bread. It's not arrogant. It's saying, I'm competent now. I know I can do this. I know how to tell stories. And that allows you to go in and have faith in your creative vision and in your skills that you know how to do this so that you can take notes either from a director or from a casting person or a writer or whatever without it being a critique on your value and, and that kind of thing, your self-worth. It's just great. Let me just adjust and help collaboratively work with people. So can you speak at all to the mentality of actors to give their power away and to and to try to blame other people for what happens as opposed to taking responsibility and achieving mastery? Okay. I think part of it, well, there's a number of things, but with that example of my coach told me to do it, it's the, I, I know I did something wrong because you're correcting me, so I want to not be the one to blame. And that's probably just human nature. It's like blaming your mom. Exactly. When you're in high school, you're yeah. like... <laughs> or the dog ate my homework. My mom didn't wake me up this morning. Like. <laughs> yes. Well, my other favorite is I, we like actors to bring a headshot and resume all the time. And some of them will go, oh, my agent didn't tell me that you need to bring a headshot and resume to an audition. I didn't think they would need to tell you. <laughs> or the ones that are like, oh, I thought my agent sent it. Take ownership of your own life, you know. You're putting 100% blame on somebody that's making 10% of the money. Mm, I love that. But I think also actors not wanting to accept responsibility is, is one thing, because that's just certain people that just aren't really going to get anywhere in life. I always, one of my catchphrases is, I'm amazed at the number of people in Los Angeles that don't own a mirror, because if they did, they would see the problem. And it's just blaming others as opposed to taking a hard look at yourself. You know, am I the person that needs to do work on myself? Uh, and there's right. There's also the ownership of when we give you a note, it's not to correct you. It's to help you. That's the positive way to look at it is we're not giving you a note because we want to yell at you on the way out the door and we're kicking you to the curb. We're giving you a note. We're giving you a redirect because there's something we see that we like. There is something positive you're doing. But there's things we see as part of the collaboration of it that you need to modify if you want to honor what the writer is going to, as the producer, pay you to do. And the other side part to that is, is a lot of actors start 
in maybe community theater. You know, if you don't have the the USC training, you start community theater with experience or short films with your friends or webisodes as they do them now. And that's very collaborative, you know, and everybody has hopefully an equal say because there's no money in it. When you get to the level where you're being paid to do work, you have to be open to doing it the way the people that are paying you want it done. It's a collaboration. It's a team sport. Yes. I tell people, if you want to do theater, you could write a one-person show and go out and do it. But if you're going to do anything that's on camera, it is a team effort. And everybody has a role to play in that in that process. Yeah. I don't hear it often, but it did stick in my head one time that an actor said it. Uh, we were giving them a note, and the actor went, well, that's not how I saw it. <laughs> well, that's great, but you're not the one <laughs> financing the production. You're being hired to do what we want. And it just was crazy. What are some uh, aspects of uh, what a performer can do in the room that really please you? You know, I feel like so many times we, we fixate on the negative. There's, there's not a casting director workshop or class I haven't been to where somebody's raised their hand and said, what are your pet peeves? And it drives me nuts because that it's just actors love to, you know, they not love to, but actors constantly are fearful they're just they're just so scared of doing anything that could jeopardize their chances of success so let's focus on the positive what are the what are some of the attributes of performers that come in that are just a pleasure to work with well they get the words right <laughs> that's number one that's actually that is number one is they get the words right <laughs> it's amazing because every time they don't get the words right it does them a disservice there's always an exception there was one exception that i thought of when we were talking about this previously we were looking for a 12-year-old for a role, and one of the three kids that came back for callbacks with the, the showrunner, the kid, he comes in, he goes, hey, um, in the third scene, there's a, a line I was going to add, if that's okay. And we were all so taken aback that the actor <laughs> asked permission to add dialogue first, and then they're like, well, sure, let's, let's see what you got. And it's a 12-year-old. Yeah, because he asked. <laughs> Nobody ever asked. And then he got there and he added the line. And not only was it a good line in the moment, it was a callback to something in the first scene. And it was just genius. And But it's an exception. It's one out of 10 years. <laughs> but I think, but at the same time, like you said, you've got to have ownership of what you're doing. So you don't want to ask permission for certain things. And I things. love that kid right now. And I don't even know who it is. Yeah. There's, oh, there's <laughs> another one that uh, we're doing a scene. And in the middle of the audition, the actor took his feet and put them on the desk. I mean, just put the feet right on the desk. And at the end, uh, Jeff, Jeff is uh, Jeff Greenberg, the casting director I work with. He went, oh, that moment when you put your feet on my desk, that was, that was inspired. That was a bold choice. And the guy went, oh, thank God. Cause I thought it, it, you know, it had the chance of you being really mad at me because I was putting my feet on your desk. <laughs> and he went, no, 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 it worked. It worked. You got away with it. But the actor knew they were taking a risk. Mm -hmm. They knew what the objective was. Cause the guy was, the role was like a douchebag kind of guy that invaded people's space and just took control and rubbed you the wrong way. Where are you going to find that guy in Hollywood? Exactly. Well, where are you going to find that guy that you also want to have him at craft services and he knows how to turn it off? So that's what I mean was if you, if you, when you're taking risks, when you're taking chances, you should know you're doing it. You know, there's a lot of actors who go, I want to show them I can think outside the box. And I always say, I work in TV. Please think inside the box <laughs> of the TV screen. And they just want to show they're a risk taker without realizing what the reward is. I love that. Yeah. And the, the guy who put his uh, feet on the desk afterwards and what you said about what he said, 
I love that because they had a vision, they thought it served the story, they executed it, but they were aware that it could be taken in a way that they didn't intend, but they were trusting in their own creative vision for that. Yeah, they, yeah, they had reasons to believe it was going to be okay, mm-hmm. even though a hundred other times that would be just well, the worst thing to do. Well, because people are constantly trying to stand out, and I have air quotes going when I do that, and I, you just rolled your eyes. So mm-hmm. can you talk about when people think they can game the process, that it's not really about the quality of the work and contributing to the story, but they think they can do something weird in the room to stand out? Well, I always go with uh, American Idol. The first two weeks of the show, there's a lot of people that stand out abhorrently. Awful singers, and they get on the show, and they get their five minutes, and they're remembered as god-awful singers. When you want to stand out, you have to realize you want to stand out in a good way. And there's many things that actors do thinking they will stand out or separate themselves from others that... It does. It separates them as people we don't want to bring back in. Mm-hmm. So the things that, the positive things that stand out, it's get the words right, is, you know, finding ways to make that connection within the scene and find things within the writer's intent that other people maybe didn't think of. That'll stand out, but that doesn't happen often. Usually it's just who, with the time allotted, makes the role shine, makes it click, makes it pop better than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And because it's art, there's not really a way to quantify that. There's, and that's where you get into the the tricks. People are always like, oh, there's gotta be a trick. There's gotta be a way that I book every role ever and I just haven't found it yet. And that's leading you down the dark road. What you really wanna do is just do the best work you can and realize that like a baseball player, you're gonna do the best work you can and only hit the ball three out of 10 times, you know, book the role one out of 10, whatever a good number would be. And you just have to let the others go and just realize it wasn't your thing. We had, there's this actor, Dave Hill, and I I hope Dave doesn't mind me telling this story, but we called him the, the Susan Lucci of Modern Family. Because Susan Lucci is phenomenal. She's on All My Children. Everybody knows who she is. She was nominated for a Daytime Emmy like 20 times in a row before she finally won. Nothing against Susan Lucci, just for whatever reason, she just... You know, it's like you flip a coin and you hit heads 20 times and it should just shouldn't happen. At some point you should hit tails. Yeah. So Dave auditioned 20 plus times for Modern Family before he booked a role in season eight. And he has the distinction. We did a pilot and Jeff gave him this compliment in this pilot 12, 13 years ago. Dave had a co-star role and Jeff said he had three lines. He got five laughs. Dave's just a funny guy and he's a good actor. And for whatever reason... It took 20 tries at bat for him to get the role. You know, it's, it's the thing that actors have to let go of is if we keep bringing you back and bringing you back, it's not to torture you. It's because we know you're good and we know you're going to make us look so good. So many actors look at auditions like a test that they have to either pass or fail. And if they didn't book it, they somehow failed. They can't see that the, the accomplishment is going in the room and doing your best work and knowing that you did you know, a great contribution to you know, that process. And then go on and focus on the next story that you're gonna tell. And that when it's right, for all these various reasons, your card gets pulled. But you, can't, you cannot think of a audition as a test, and then your whole objective is how do I book this job as opposed to how do I tell this story. Mm-hmm. I think part of it as well, I'll, I'll steal this from uh, David Dean Battrell, who's a working actor that I know. And he said to me, uh, I know him because he created this uh, 
I just met him actually. Did you? Yeah. Oh, awesome. He spoke at my school. Um, and I got a free copy of his book. Nice. <laughs> yeah, he just oh, released yeah. a book. Yes, it is. It <laughs> <laughs> makes true. it valuable. Well, I I knew him as an actor because a lot of people know him from Boston Legal. He did um, what was supposed to be one episode as this crazy character called Lincoln Meyer. And based off what he did in that one episode, David E. Kelly wrote an arc for him that was eight or nine episodes long. And I know him from... Uh, a theater project he did called SciFest, and it was a one-act science fiction play festival that he did for three summers at the Acme Theater until Equity and their infinite wisdom decided to get rid of the 99-seat waiver plan. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Equity. Uh, but anyway, so that's how I know him, and as I was having a conversation with him, he said he was sometimes embarrassed when he'd be out at the grocery store or somewhere else, and he'd run into a crew member that would come up and go, hey, David, how are, how are you? And he'd have no idea who it was. And then he realized it's because actors on a set are paid to ignore 100 people. That if you're doing the job well, you're focused on your scene partner, you're focused on the reality of bringing the scene to life. You're not looking at the guy behind the camera. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at the guy holding the boom mic. If you do, you're not doing the job well. He goes, you know, maybe I should have remembered him from craft services, so that's on me. Mm -hmm. But primarily, you're ignoring people, and that's what it means to kind of be in the moment. So those actors that come in for the audition and they don't, in the moment, see Jeff sitting there watching them. They're not noticing the chaos that could be outside, noises coming into the room, and they're just focused on me as the reader or focused on the work that they've got to do. And there's little things that actors can do that make you see the location, make you see the action going on. And in, a, in, a, in an office, and those are the best ones. If you can look in their eyes and see everything else. You know, uh, the example I give is uh, the pilot of Modern Family, there's a soccer mom role. And it's a one-line role that I use as an example when I'm doing a class. And the actors that can, when reading the soccer mom lines, see the soccer game and see it so well that you see the soccer game through their eyes are the ones that are gonna do a little better at an audition. When you get on set, you don't have to do that work because the editor will cut to the soccer field to let the audience see it. You don't have to show it to us anymore. But if you can do it in an audition, it's a trick. Mm -hmm. you know, but it's making you in the moment much more than anybody else is in the moment. Why do you teach? Why do you believe in educating people? Or why do you choose to do it yourself? It's, <laughs> it's going to sound so... Uh, it just sounds egotistical when I say it this way, but there's part of me when I started was to give back. Mm -hmm. And it was all the things that I wished I knew as somebody trying to be an actor that I think can help people that are now currently trying to be an actor. That's what motivated me to begin with is, you know, trying to find a way to help people and give them back. But while it may have started that way, there's also the component that it does help me earn a living. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go teach, I get paid to teach. And I live in Los Angeles where it's not cheap to live. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I would be remiss in saying I don't, I do do it for the money. Mm -hmm. But I think I do a really good job because I was inspired initially to do it because I thought I had something to offer people. Well, I don't know many acting teachers in LA that teach for free. I understand, but there's a lot of actors that do believe casting people are beholden to give their time to them with whenever they should have it. Well, I have a question on that topic. You you said earlier that you know you had an actor who was the Susan Lucci of your show. 
you've read and read and read and read. How can actors, or how do you feel about actors who keep in touch with you? How aggressive should they be with that? How often should they touch base? Should they never cross that barrier? What's realistic? I think if you are doing it in a professional manner, there is not too much. If you're sending me a postcard because you just booked a play or you're on a show and you're doing it every time that happens and that for whatever reason happened to you five times that week, well, maybe pace it out a little bit. <laughs> but I don't think that's a problem. If you contact me on Twitter or Facebook or send me an email and oh, you do it. Uh, Twitter, not that much. Facebook, I couldn't tell you how often because I don't go out there unless I'm trying to cause trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and the even the email address I have, I don't get as many emails as you would think. We still normally get, I still probably get more postcards than I get emails. Mm-hmm. But where it becomes too much, I'll show you where it goes way too far, is one pilot season, we just get crazy busy and can't do anything other than focus on getting the job done. So the mail will stack up. And I remember this one year, mail stacked up, stacked up, and it became such a big stack that it fell over and could have, <laughs> could have killed somebody. No, not really. It wasn't that bad. But I went, okay, it's time. I got to get through all of this. And I opened up one of the letters, and it was from somebody saying, hey, hope you had a great Valentine's Day and enjoyed all the Valentines I sent you. Number 10 of 10. Hope you enjoyed. And I looked at this big stack of mail and realized I had nine more to open. And that was not right. Mm-hmm. You know. So at school, a lot of the times we're given assignments where we're encouraged to um, reach out to casting directors and agents and managers just for like an informational, like a general general information meeting, like a 30-minute meeting, like go grab coffee and just like ask questions. You know, you're not looking for a job, yeah. but you want to make this relationship. How do you feel about someone who doesn't have experience reaching out to you for a meeting and like would you even answer someone who just like casually sends you an email like hey like I know you're the casting director of Modern Family a big fan of the show like could you uh, would you be willing to meet with me to talk to me a little bit about what you do okay so I think the request is good and that's something you should be doing what you have to realize is we can never honor all the requests we get Mm -hmm. it's just not enough time in the day and with the General meetings, they're, I think, an old school way of doing things that are done less and less because of technology. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, back in the day when you didn't have uh, breakdown services doing things electronically or LA Casting or Casting Frontier or any of the services, uh, act, you know, and casting people still keep their files of actors they know, but back in the day they had to go to plays, they had to meet actors on general to help accumulate their files so when they needed an actor the next day, they had a stack of headshots to go to. Today, I can put out a breakdown or a brief on LA Casting, and within 30 minutes, I've got 500 submissions. So the need for those general meetings is less and less and less. But it is a way to introduce people. For yourself, you do have something. You've got the USC you know, training. You're at USC. That's your hook. And that's what I think actors don't always realize because the best requests from somebody we don't know have a hook. I'm a USC graduate or I'm studying at USC or went to Juilliard or I was just in this indie film that showed at this festival and I happened to get nominated as best actor at the festival. Something that's a hook that tells us that you're better than somebody else is just saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. You so know? would that be like the best way for someone who doesn't have a lot of professional experience to get 
notice and to maybe get an opportunity to you know get an audition in front of you? Yeah, I think you have to market yourself as well you can with what you have. So whether it is sending an email because you happen to have somebody's email address or finding a way to contact them on Twitter because a lot of us are dumb enough to be on Twitter and uh, <laughs> expressing our opinions thinking it matters. But you know, then there's the old school way of just headshot and a resume with the cover letter that you mail the office saying, hey, I'd like a chance to introduce myself to you. I'm a USC graduate. That still works. It's never going to work at the frequency you want it to. And that's what, And just because it's not working at the frequency you want it to does not mean it's not working. There's a, uh, a feeling when you come to Los Angeles or when you're trying to pursue this that there's all these barriers, there's all these gatekeepers that are stopping you from getting to your dream, whether it's the physical gates at a, at a lot that are with security where you can't get on the lot. But even if you were to get on the lot or, you know, get through those gates or something, there's all these barriers in place. And people, I think, see them for the opposite reason they're there. They're not there to prevent people from achieving their dreams. They're there to protect the value of the time of the professionals that are making things happen who, of course, everybody would want to meet somebody who's in a position to support them in their career, but you don't have time to meet with all those people. So you have all these different you know, pieces in place to protect the value of your time so you can get your work done. You can meet with people that are a good use of your time, either for personal reasons or professional reasons. Um, and so when people transgress that being quote unquote bold or like trying to crash an audition or trying to you know, sneak onto a lot or whatever the case may be, maybe because they heard some story from somebody where they did it and it worked out in a positive way, which is you know, it, you don't hear all the times it doesn't work out positively, which is, you know, again, you said the one exception in 10 years, like mm -hmm. there are the exceptions to the rule. Um, but isn't that the way it is, right? That you have these things in place to protect the value of your time and so that the people that come to you are, are, are good use of your time. That's correct. And even with those barriers, there's a lot that comes in that is still not valuable, that still can waste our time. Uh, Emails made everything easier, but it's made everything harder as well because everybody submits on LA Casting or Breakdown, and then they double submit by email. Mm. And what the real barrier is for most actors is the overwhelming number of people that are trying to do it, the overwhelming number of people that think they can do it. <laughs> you know, if it was just all the qualified people going for the roles, there'd still be too many people. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of unqualified people that, you know, the best actors make it seem easy. And then there's, you know, the people all over the world that are dreaming of being an actor or dreaming of being part of Hollywood. You know, they're the dreamers. We're looking for actors. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the Hollywood hopefuls. We're looking for actors. Mm -hmm. And just the sheer volume of it. Because when everybody submits via email, then it makes it harder for me to find the one person that was submitted via email because for whatever reason they weren't on one of the services, that they're between agents. Or maybe they don't have an agent and they're trying to promote themselves and they just happen to have my email address. It gets lost in the shuffle because of just the volume of things. And going back to how to you know, get introduced to people, there is nothing that is taboo if you do it well and the timing is perfect. Because one of the taboos is you don't call a casting office. You just don't. As an actor, you don't call a casting office. We will not be happy with you. There's somebody that booked a role in Modern Family because they called the casting office and asked to audition. Now, it's an extreme example. We were looking for an actor that could play the bagpipes or a bagpipe player that could act. <laughs> that is an extremely small community. 
So the bagpipe player that was just hustling to get a gig and called the office, he got in because we were open to people calling because there are, what, 20 people maybe that can do that, if that many? So you just, if you're doing it well, if you're doing it smart, there's nothing really that's taboo. And back to the numbers, I've got a publicly published email address. It's postcard at allenhooper.com. It's very easy to find if you know I'm, my name is Alan Hooper and you can <laughs> type in www.allenhooper.com. You know, it's just easy. Mm-hmm. And some of the emails I get, I look at it and I'm like, this is why others don't have a publicly published email address. Because mm-hmm. you get some things that are just, some that's just garbage and some that's just very ignorant, uninformed. And because if those become too much, then you can't find the stuff that you actually were What's an example of some of those ignorant or uninformed emails? I could read you one. Ignorance can be fixed. Mm-hmm. It really can. Uh, it's incompetence that's sometimes harder to fix. I got this a couple of years ago, and it starts with, Hello, my name is Redacted. I just turned 19 on January 6th. I live in the northern Kentucky, greater Cincinnati area. I attend Xavier University, in which I'm studying biology slash pre-med. If you've been following March Madness at all, we took a bit of an upset in the Elite Eight by losing to Gonzaga, but we still made it farther than most people thought possible. However, the purpose of this email is not to give you my life story, rather to discuss my aspirations and goals for the life ahead of me. After some careful, as well as thorough research, I've discovered you and your amazing credentials as a casting director. That's the preamble that then goes on for another two pages. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So did he get the part? She did not, no. <laughs> and did she get the part? Tells you life story, no. and not to tell you my life story. Correct, exactly. <laughs> then don't and, tell me your life story. And it's just somebody out of ignorance, out of not having training yeah. or anybody that could tell them the proper way to do it, wasted a whole lot of time mm-hmm. when they should just start with, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm looking for acting opportunities. Here's what I think I bring that would help you in your life, you know, go better. Because that's the other thing. Actors, like you said, they always think we've got barriers, that we don't like them, that we hate them for whatever reason. We want them to be good. And that was the thing that I heard repeatedly when I was trying to be an actor. The casting people say, we want you to be good. I went, oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And then I got in there and I realized, yes, if a good actor comes in and books the role, my job is easier. I get to go home at a decent hour and have dinner with my wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when there's too much work or we're not finding the actor that can book that role is when I'm in the office till 10, 11 o'clock, midnight, you know, eating my PB&J in the, in the kitchen and not seeing my wife for a whole week until okay, the weekend so comes around. Okay, so for anybody listening to this, just know Alan likes PB&J. <laughs> I love PB&J. <laughs> okay, so I, I have a non-related question just about casting. You know, okay. I was watching a, a trailer for a Scorsese masterclass, and in the trailer, and I'm going to see if under fair use we can use a clip, hmm. he says that casting is 85% of his picture. 85, yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the Scorsese, but 85% of his picture. And I'm curious for you if there's a current example feature, television, doesn't matter, of, of a really brilliant casting choice where you think, hey, that, that they really got it right with that casting. Be wrong if I said modern family, but <laughs> I, I, it does count, but I shouldn't be the one using that example. <laughs> there are two I'll give you. One's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine has a great cast, and I watch it every week in, in part because of the cast, but it's a loony show. It's, it's Barney Miller for people that don't know Barney Miller. It really is. It's a ver- you could say it's a version of Bernie Miller, but it's, every actor on that is awesome, and they all bring a different thing to the show. Uh, there's another sh- uh, show I was watching on Netflix called Money Heist, and it's a Spanish show. I think the Spanish language title is uh, La Casa de Papel. It's like Paper House. 
and the cast in that is insanely good. And it's a great show. It's well-written. It's a bank robbery. But what pulls you into it, what makes you care about it, is the actors. Um, Umbrella Academy on Netflix is very well cast. And I enjoy it a lot. I would say the shows that I have loved the most is from the casting. I'd go with Battlestar Galactica. I'm a big sci-fi nerd. But that was, especially I remember... I did that for six seasons. Yeah. I worked with Ron Moore. Well, I, I told Sean when I was looking you up, I was like, oh, I can't go all fanboy, but I'm all <laughs> fanboy for a moment. But I remember the controversy in casting Starbuck as a, a female. Katie was great. And she was phenomenal. How good was she? She was phenomenal. But everybody in that cast just made it click in various ways. Lost is another good example. There's a lot of people that thought Lost got too crazy for them by the end. I, they could have read the phone book and I would have watched it because it was a great cast that April Webster put together for that show. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what's interesting about how they handled the cast on that that I liked about the first season of Lost is each episode of the first season, at least kicking it off, started in the same timeline, but here's Sean's story, mm-hmm. and then we're going for Ross's story. And mm-hmm. then so each episode mm-hmm. gave you the same timeline, just a different perspective, which really allowed them to develop character, like you're saying. And then, mm-hmm. As I said to you outside, I think once you buy into character, you'll go anywhere with the writer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I have a question. If your typecasting is not similar to who you are as a person, um, is it possible to like, I mean, obviously, as you like build your kind of career, you can get cast outside of your type. But like, what is your recommendation for someone who just like doesn't vibe with their typecasting? Okay. Well, there's two parts to that. The one is there are people that look different than they feel. Yeah. I call it the Jessica Rabbit syndrome. You know, that she's like, I, I'm not this, I was drawn this way. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a naughty girl. And, <laughs> but there's people that for whatever reason, they either have a lead look or, you know, they seem attractive even in Hollywood. But within, they feel more like the outsider, which is what we all do. Um, and, and there's very few character people that feel they're Brad Pitt inside. But it's usually okay. people that look like Angelina Jolie, and for some reason they feel like a character actor on the inside. I don't know how to fix it. You got to—that's a dichotomy that's that's really hard. You got to end up being maybe like a Paul Rudd or a, a, a Jason Bateman, who are not the Brad Pitts of the world. They're still attractive gentlemen, and but they become leads. They're not Paul Giamatti who is a character actor, is a lead actor. You know, it's, I don't know how to fix that dichotomy that you feel different than how you look. I think part of what leads to that, though, is the fact that people don't always update how they see themselves. Like sometimes, you know, the phrase that I have is people are still fighting battles they've already won. So maybe you felt a certain way when you were in elementary school, and then you worked really hard to get, get in shape or to, you know, dress better or whatever it is, and then you've still got that way of seeing yourself in the mirror as this person who was not enough or who wasn't attractive enough. And so no matter how fit or how you know handsome or how pretty you now are objectively to other people, you're still so critical of yourself because you haven't accepted that you've won that battle. And mm-hmm. I say there's plenty of battles in life to fight. Stop fighting the ones you've already won. Correct. And the other part of it is if there is that role that needs to be somebody that looks beautiful, but is, doesn't know it on the inside. There are those roles, there's just not as many of them. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you're the unicorn that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. 
you know, one, another one of my flipping things I say is God does not give with both hands. So sometimes you'll see very attractive people that are not funny and because they don't need to be. They've got something else going for them where character actors, uh, people that look like myself, sometimes have worked on their sense of humor more because it gives them something that they just don't have superficially. And so that's part of it is trying to f realize that if you feel like you're in a very small category, realize there's less competition when you go for those very limited roles. Mm -hmm. You made me think of something with that. It's interesting how I said some people who are, you know, in more of the, the character actor look category may work on being funny so they have something to offer. And one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, people end up being the funny person or something like that as a way to survive socially. It's not even something they actively were trying to do because they wanted to be artistic performers or something. It's like we say, oh, he's so funny. Well, that's how, how that's where his social currency came from is because he learned how to get ahead in his peer group by being funny or that's how he deflected bullying or things like mm -hmm. that. And now it's hard for him to even do it in storytelling without getting trained about how to do comedic work in material that's been given to you. I think that's also why a lot of stand-up comics don't have sitcoms that take off is because it's much easier to work on material of your own and hone it over, you know, a year for an hour set. But to have 22 new pages given to you every week that's written by a team and all that, it's a very different thing to do material that's given to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, Ray Romano is a good example of, of a stand-up that wanted to, like, found something he loved about the acting and then went and started doing things that were further and further away from his stand-up, mm -hmm. you know, where he has become a, an actor. You know, he's, he's an actor. Everybody, everybody that acts is an actor. Mm -hmm. But he could have just been Raymond, because Raymond was based on, you know, his stand-up, and he's there. It was part of that wave of Seinfeld and Roseanne and uh, Rodney Carrington and others that Jeff Foxworthy that had their own show that kind of was based on sort of who that Tim Allen. Yeah. And... But, uh, you know, especially with the recent work Ray Romano has done that he's just because uh, he's on Parenthood for a while doing dramatic work mm -hmm. or uh, men of a certain age that he was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing to think about for a young actor is you do want to figure out how to typecast yourself. Yeah. This was great advice somebody gave me when I was attending a workshop as an actor is if you you have to typecast yourself to get your foot in the door. And once you're typecast, then you deal with the fact that you've been typecast and then you find other things that you want to do. But that just makes you clear. I mean, people are afraid of being pigeonholed, and I think it's a, it's a holdover from thinking like a stage actor where you can play all things on a stage, and, and that's part of the magic of theater. But in on camera, we get very specific, and we can find very specifically what we're looking for. So we don't need Brittany to play a dude. We don't need you know somebody to play an old person if they're young. On stage, that works. But in what we do on camera, that would break the immersion. It would, it would make it hard to focus on the story. Uh, so by making yourself clear to casting and to clients on how to use you in stories, you can then, once you've established yourself, broaden out what you play. Correct. I always go with uh, Robin Williams and, and Tom Hanks are my examples, because Robin Williams, stand-up comedian, and uh, he then ends up on Happy Days playing an alien. And I always make the joke that Robin Williams is so unique that they had to make him an alien for America to get who Robin Williams was. <laughs> and then he goes from that to Mork and Mindy. And then he goes from Mark and Mindy to Club Med and some other uh, comedy films like that. And then to Good Morning uh, Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, One Hour Photo. 
But Robin Williams didn't start at One Hour Photo. Mm -hmm. He started being an alien on Happy Days. Mm -hmm. But he was a formerly trained actor as well. Correct. But he was, what he was brilliant at is what got his foot in the door. And it's like, especially the transition from TV to film, he didn't go from Mark and Mindy to doing One Hour Photo. He went into that god-awful Club Med. No, I think you're totally right. With it, you know, In spite of all the formal training, it was kind of being true to his personality that got him noticed, not all the training that got mm -hmm. him noticed. Yeah, exactly. That that even with all that training and all the training you have, that you're going to get typecast. Because the, the Tom Hanks example, starting with Bosom Buddies, but then you eventually get to Philadelphia, you get to Saving Private Ryan, you mm. get to, you know, anything he wants to do. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so a couple other topics here before we uh, wrap it up. Um, the first one is uh, you are part of a union. Yes, Teamsters Local 399. Right, and I am part of a union, SAG-AFTRA. Kind um, of a union. <laughs> and so I, uh, I'm interested in, in how you feel about unions and the importance to be union um, and what their value is in our industry. That's a fun question to answer on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the unions in Hollywood are extremely valuable because if they weren't there, everybody would be working for free. Because there's so many people willing to work for free to get their foot in the door that it would never end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, with the unions there, there are at least minimums that try to protect, you know, actors, casting people, drivers, uh, you know, set decorators. Everybody's got some sort of protections with the union. And you sometimes lose sight of that once you get in the union and you're trying to make things better. You sometimes don't see how bad it could be if the union wasn't there to begin with. Amen. But I do think the unions sometimes are a necessary evil because they end up sometimes if they're if they're not doing things well, they sometimes become a disservice to the members and hopefully you then just have a change of leadership or a change of perspective that somehow allows it to course correct and focus back on what it should be, which is protecting the people that need the help. Uh, I was a shop steward for Local 399 for the Casting Associates, and I've been very involved with the steering committee, which helps with the negotiations. We had a meeting with a bunch of associates, and one of the associates said, well, how do we protect the people that aren't willing to stand up, that aren't willing to fight? I said, you do that with the contract. That's what a union contract is for, is to help the people that, for whatever reason, don't have the ability to speak out and fight for themselves. Because for myself, you know, I value having the union stuff. I wouldn't have a health plan if it wasn't for a union. I would not. I would not have, uh, of course, everything's changed in the government. But back when I first joined the union, I was not able to get health insurance. And I, the union is what got me health insurance. But because I've been doing this for a while, I might have this arrogance that creeps in sometimes that thinks, because uh, I get paid more than the union minimum, you know, I have benefits that I've been able to negotiate for myself as an individual having done this 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. I'm fighting in the union to help those that need that contract to be as strong as possible, not necessarily for myself. And that's usually the easier fight to make. You know, it's much easier to fight for others than it is to fight for yourself. Oh, amen. People will do so much to support people around them and not take care of themselves. Yeah. But I think people that get to a certain level need to always appreciate that they didn't get to that level without the help of the union, without the help of some others. Even non-union performers, because the, the work that's done from the union sets a precedent for the industry that then 
uh, even non-union people benefit from a lot of those precedents. Yeah, well, unions in general benefit people that are not unionized. The 40-hour work week, that's the union, helping everybody else that's non-union. And, you know, everything gets too big and then it contracts and there's problems within unions that people try to point at a problem being of unionism altogether and it's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. So you just have to be careful of that. Now I'm just in my head and I realize my thoughts are going quicker than what I'm actually saying <laughs> and I might not be making as much coherent sense as I'd like to. Well, here's the, the other topic that I'd love for us to perhaps end on. Um, and that is, you know, on your website, you list a bunch of bullet points about how actors and perhaps their parents even should protect them as they're going through this industry. Was that the flyer I had posted there? Yeah, something okay. where you said, you know, uh, here, you know, here are all the signs that, you know, what you're dealing with is a scam, how to avoid being scammed. And so I was wondering if you could share with our, our listeners and, our, and, and us uh, some of what you think are the common scams that people fall prey to and how to protect themselves. Wow. Okay. I think every scam there is, is easily realized as a scam if you aren't a dreamer. I think what happens is, is the people that scam people, they do it because the dreams override people's common sense. You know, there's the smell test. You know, if it seems too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And the example I would give you is there's, in California, there's the Gregorian, they call it the Gregorian Talent Scam Prevention Act, and that's really not its technical name, but it's what most people know it by. And it was uh, enacted to try to protect actors from scams. And it was primarily intended to protect child actors who at a mall were being approached. You know, the parents were at the mall with the kid and somebody comes up and goes, hey, little tu uh, Timmy or little Susie, they seem like they got some talent, but you know what, they also need classes, they need headshots. And it was really a rope-a-dope to sell these parents something. And the parents would get lost in the dream or they just wouldn't have enough information to make a, a, a good decision. And the example I give is there was one person that was uh, did a plea deal under that act. They were charged with bringing people from Ohio out to some boot camp, and the parents were paying thousands and thousands of dollars to have their kids come to this boot camp, and the, ran afoul of the city, and uh, the person charged accepted a plea deal. What most people didn't realize is that the person charged was a 23-year-old, and people in Ohio were given a 23-year-old thousands and thousands of dollars thinking that was going to lead to their child being a star. That's on the people in Ohio. Mm -hmm. That's just stupid <laughs> to think you should be given a 23-year-old money and he's going to tell you how to make it in Hollywood. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. That doesn't pass the smell test. Mm -hmm. Now, person was doing something wrong, at least per their plea deal, but I still think the people allowed themselves to be scammed in the first place. And then there's other scams that have been going on for 20 years and that get fought tooth and nail by people and somehow they hang in there and it's just because there's still people that they hear what they want to hear. You're good, you're valuable, you've got something and then they don't hear, but mm -hmm. we need you to do this. You know, you just got to look out for that, but. And then when they start asking for the money and when it feels like too much money, mm -hmm. that's the clue. Yeah. You know, you can go through different examples in different specific places, but the general rule, which is what everybody just needs to learn, is, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. Yeah. Mm. Well, 
I am so appreciative, Ellen, that you took the time to come talk with us this morning, and also, Brittany, for you to come join us as well. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Have a good time. <laughs> okay.